Thank you, Stu. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a glorious day outside. At least it's starting to look a, more, a little more glorious. Um, glad everybody is here today. Looking forward to continuing our fellowship today. We're going to be switching gears over the next uh, several months as far as uh, what we'll be covering uh, in the main service in God's Word. And while I'm working on the next series, I'm going to do a couple of more of, I mean, there's still expositional messages, but uh, more of a topical nature rather than thinking of an, an entire series. So we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now the bulletin says we'll be reading verses 6 through 11, but um, we are going to actually read starting at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, and I will ask if you are able, please, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul has been talking about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll speak more to that in a moment. And here in chapter 5, he gets a little more specific and Rather than just speaking about the times and the seasons and so on, he, uh, he, he transitions there in verse 1 from that to talking about the day of the Lord. So, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So these days, particularly as uh, we look around, we read the news, we see what's happening in our world and lots of uh, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and affliction and tyranny and uh, oppression and poverty and sorrows of every kind, there is uh, a great interest in the last days and looking at our, our times and uh, assuming uh, that the day of Christ's return is close, and it may very well be. I personally think that it is. But uh, it, Regardless of that, the interest is great, and of course there's a, a lot being written about these things. Uh, I've been approached, and I'm working on, uh, 
producing an article uh, that's going to be part of a book uh, on the subject of eschatology and looking at various views and so on. Um, don't hold your breath. It's a long-term project. It probably won't be uh, to next year sometime before it gets published. But in any case, it's an indication of the kind of interest that there is that in spite of all the books that there are in eschatology, somebody wants one more to be printed. Um, because we're trying to figure out what the Lord is doing in our times and also think then in terms of, you know, so, so what as far as how we live now and how we think now. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a, quite a few years ago now, um, I remember there was a, when we were living out in, in the Portland, Oregon area, there was an eschatology conference that was coming to Vancouver, and there have been many since. And it just, it was, you know, attended by thousands and thousands of people. People want to know what's going on. There's an interest in the Lord's coming and in the Lord's kingdom. But all too often, the greater part of the interest that we have, unfortunately, is given to what we cannot know. To what we are told that we cannot know, that it is none of our business to know. We are more concerned with those things than uh, what we already know and should be acting upon. Paul's comments here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 are quite pastoral in nature. They're not, he's not being a seminary professor here. He's not being a rabbi. He is being a pastor to this church, this beloved church of his there in Thessalonica. If you look at, at uh, chapter 4, a few verses ahead, verse thir uh, before, in verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He has a heart for, for them. They, apparently there had been some deaths there in the congregation, and he is writing to encourage them, to remind them of the hope that they have. This is not just about dotting the I's and crossing the T's and laying everything out in some chart or something um, so that we can all know exactly what's going to happen when. That's not his concern. His concern is about their behavior and ours by extension in light of the fact that Christ is coming again. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes, it's the last hour. He definitely had the perspective that we are living in the last days. Of course, the Lord's time and our time are not the same as, as we know from, the Psalm, from Psalm 90. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, uh, and a thousand years is a day. I mean, it, his concept of time and uh, uh, is far different from ours, and unlike us, he is not enslaved to it. He is the master of it. So here, in this last hour, dear friends, our, our concern should not be so, uh, so wrapped up in what, what uh, may very well happen in the future, but living the expectation that the future is coming and that the Lord's word is certain, uh, we have some obligations to live today. Believers are to be living. You and I are to be living uh, in 
the expectation of Christ's coming. And we're going to explore some of the ramifications of that as Paul uh, speaks of those things here. Now, first of all, uh, in verses 1 through 5, Paul has an emphasis upon what is known. And, and the fact that believers are to be knowledgeable about certain things. In verse 2, uh, well, first of all, verse 1, I mean, he says, all right, you can look around, all of you are seeing what's happening. You can, from what the Lord Jesus Christ said, for example, in Matthew 24 and other places regarding the signs of the, uh, of the times uh, as uh, the day of the Lord would approach, some of those things I mentioned before, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and affliction and earthquakes and fires and all of those kind of things. Um, there are a lot of those sorts of things going on. And there have been throughout history. People have thought they were in the end times uh, and that Jesus was coming any moment for centuries because there have been periods of time throughout history when uh, these sort of things have come and gone. And it reminds believers hey, we need to be paying attention, um, we need to be ready. But in that readiness, we're to, we are to have some knowledge. Pay attention to the times and seasons, but also note there in verse uh, 2, uh, something else that you should know, or maybe a better word would say recognize, and that is that you cannot predict when the Lord will come. It's going to come as a thief, he will come as a thief in the night, it says. In Matthew chapter 24, which I referred to a moment ago, Jesus said, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And in a few verses later, a few sentences later in that same chapter, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then he repeats it, the very same thing, in the very next chapter. So you've got three statements in Scripture all in the same thing, in the same context, tells you this is absolutely certain what the Lord is saying. And the certainty is, is that you don't know. And I don't know. Now, why is that important? Why does Paul mention that here? Besides the fact that Jesus emphasized it in that way. From a pastoral perspective, he wants them to be encouraged wouldn't encouragement be telling us when it was going to happen? I mean, wouldn't you think? I'm not sure that it would when we understand exactly what's involved in the day of the Lord. I think it might cause us more anxiety than if we didn't know. Um, but nonetheless, in his sovereign providence, he doesn't desire to tell us. He wants us to trust him. And from a pastoral standpoint, you know, the... The Thessalonians, like others in that time, uh, persecution was not quite as widespread as it would eventually become in the Roman Empire, but it was coming, and there were pockets of it. Uh, certainly at this particular time, there was really more persecution from the Jews toward the Christians, uh, the Jewish leaders at that time, as they followed Paul around and followed believers around and tried to stir up trouble against them, get them thrown in jail, and so on. So there was some of that, uh, but things were also starting to ramp up from the secular authorities as well, because Christianity, um, well, actually, Judaism had the same, same issue. 
that they stood opposed to the, the uh, polytheism, the many gods uh, system that was characteristic of Rome and Greece and you know every other pagan uh, authority structure that was there. And so uh, when you say there's only one God, well, you're, you're not just making a religious statement, you're making a political one. And so some of that persecution was starting to come up. And, and it was very uh, common during those early centuries. In fact, that's where some of the uh, apocryphal books uh, were written during this time that were looking at uh, the things that were going on and people were assuming, hey, this is it. This is the last day. And, um, and there was a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, and so on. And very likely some of those fears were creeping into the Thessalonian church. And Paul is saying, essentially, you need to relax. The Lord has this. This is in his hands. It's not in yours. It's not in any man's. You, you, you can't predict when the Lord will come. So therefore, you need to be watching and being ready. And notice uh, another thing that you should know here is, in, is suggested in verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Here's something you should know as a believer. You cannot trust in appearances. You can look around at, at the situation and think, well, while there are struggles here and there and, and we are having problems, well, you know, the gospel is going forward, the, the church is uh, still hanging in there, flourishing in some places, really expanding hugely in some places, and other places, even while under persecution, is enduring, and, and, and we can think those kinds of thoughts. But I think it goes even beyond what the church is doing. And from the world's perspective, there's, and sure, there's struggles and there's political upheaval and all that sort of thing. But generally speaking, when you look around at the world system, there's commerce, there's money, there's luxury, there's comforts, there's food. In some places, not so much. I understand that. I'm speaking generally. There are many in the world that think there is nothing to worry about because they're looking at their own local situation and saying, hey, I'm fine. All's good. I don't need this God stuff. I don't need to pay attention to the claims of the Creator if they even acknowledge that there is a Creator. But the wicked, the lost are subject to destruction without escape. They are in the dark, Paul is suggesting here. And believers need to be aware of that. Not, so in a general respect, whether you're looking at some positive thing or some negative thing, it can be easy to get your chain yanked every time you read the news and you, have, and you read a headline that this is happening in this place and this is happening in that place or this great thing is happening or this great thing is happening and one minute you're up and like, isn't this fantastic, da, 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 da. And over here it's like, oh, this is terrible. It must be, you know, any second now Jesus is going to be here. 
we are not capable of taking in all the, all the data that there is in this world about what is going on. We, we get this tiny little slice that's limited to our ability to see, hear, and comprehend. And that's not much. It's not to say that we don't see, hear, and comprehend things that are true. But it is to say, before we get too confident in what we see, hear, and think, maybe we ought to have a little humility before the Lord because he is the one who knows this stuff ultimately and not us. So we should, Paul is just saying, again, don't get excited. The Lord is in charge of this. Don't get freaked out by present circumstances that, that, or get too elated about present circumstances depending on what's going on in your life at the moment. We cannot, we cannot trust to appearances. And he, he uses the, the negative side of things here about the wicked who are saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he's referring back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 8 where uh, the Lord is rebuking the false prophets because they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that was also in Jeremiah chapter 6. So we know that the Lord has sovereignly chosen when he's going to return and when all these things are going to come to fruition, and he hasn't told us. Number two, we know that trusting to our senses to try to determine what's true and what's going to happen or what isn't going to happen is a mistake. Uh, we're not capable of doing that. And finally, in verses four and five, we read this. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. You're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Um, turn over, if you will, to John chapter, first John, excuse me, first John chapter two. 1 John chapter 2, John is uh, telling believers uh, that everything that he is writing to them is, in a sense, nothing new. It's all based upon old truth. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, I'm writing an old one to you. Um, the old commandment's the word you have heard. At the same time, he says in verse 8, it is a new commandment, as it's fresh, right, freshly applied to you, uh, is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then he goes on to talk about light and darkness and your place in it. Now, we already have the statement emphasized multiple times that we don't know all of this. But that doesn't mean that we're ignorant of everything. The Lord has given us many things in his word for us to look around and discern the times and the seasons and be able to at least determine, hey, I better be paying attention. The Lord's coming again. I need to be living in that expectation and to help us, uh, to give us light to know how to walk during these times. So he's, we've got light. We, if, if you, oh, let me put it this way. If you dwell in darkness all the time, what happens to your vision? This is really obvious. Unless you're like, you know, some fish in a cave pool, right, that the Lord created to be able to see in no light, um, 
when you're in total darkness, you can't see. Okay, I, I know that's a shock probably, but, but think about it for a minute. If you're on social media at all, which is a trial to anybody's soul, how much on social media is all good news, sweetness, and light? I mean, there's some. There's, if, you, if you want sweetness and light, you can go to Tom's page and see the pictures of his cats. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, is that um, it's, a, it's an old rule in, in journalism, the, the, the journalism business, right, that, that uh, sin sells papers. Wickedness, calamity, trauma, whatever, affliction. That's what, that's what everybody wants to hear. Um, we have a fascination with that sort of thing. And if you spend a lot of time on social media, you know that people get wound up in a real hurry because of all how horrible everything is all the time. And they live all the time in just soaking in all of the wretched garbage that is going on in the world around us and finding their fulfillment somehow and that they know how bad it is. I tell you, if you live in the darkness, you will see nothing. We're not in the darkness. We need to have less of a fascination with the darkness and find our fascination and our, and our joy in the things that are true and of the light. You want to know how to deal with the darkness? Know the light. Don't tarnish yourself and fill your mind with the hopelessness of the world and expect somehow you're going to find joy and encouragement in Jesus. You're fighting a losing battle. Paul says, don't get all mired in, the, in the, the ugliness that's around you. You are children of the light. And if you fix your, fix your eyes on the light of Jesus Christ, then you will be equipped to deal with the darkness. You'll have the, the, the spotlight to shine so you can actually see the way to go. So uh, these are the things about which we're to be knowledgeable and it's not quite what you would expect. You might think, well, you should, um, uh, and, and believe me, I'm a big fan, you ought to know theology, but there's the idea that I'm just gonna you know, know a bunch of theology, or I'm gonna know this, or I'm gonna know that, and I'm gonna know the days and all of that. It's like, know your limitations, and trust your God. Fix your eyes on Him and His light, and you will be aware. In John, uh, back there in 1 John, um, if you're still there, I read verse 8. Take a look at verses 20 and 20, um, well, 20 through 27 is this whole passage here. It says, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. It doesn't mean you have, it, it's you all have knowledge. It's not you have all knowledge. Okay, But you all have knowledge. We have the Word. We have the Spirit of God who dwells within us to teach it. So we have, we have a lot of things that we know. Praise the Lord for that. But you have been, um, uh, let's see, oh, so verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So he's seeking to encourage them in the truth. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. 
This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So this, if, for those of you that were in our Sunday school hour, as we were watching the video on Revelation and the doctrine of the Word, this is really what uh, uh, the uh, uh, Dr. Nichols was talking about here in that we, that we can trust God's Word because God's light is in it and it is infallible. It does not lead us astray. So let it abide in you. And uh, this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Now, uh, take a look at these last two verses, I write, or 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him, that is Christ, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't read anybody, we don't sit under the preaching of the word, that we don't study you know, our, on our own, we don't take classes or anything like that. He's speaking here not so much of because you know it because you know it all now you don't have any nobody has to tell you anything. It's from uh, the perspective of those who are are trying to deceive. You are able to discern right from wrong if you abide in His Word. That's the focus that is here. As His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we won't find truth in darkness. Our knowledge is going to be guided by his word and by his spirit. And uh, that's where we will find the truth, not muckraking uh, in, the, in the corruption and the affliction and the wickedness of the world. However, Paul, I think... Uh, would is swift to say here that this is not about uh, sticking your head in the sand and pretending pretending that all is well. <laughs> Looking around, obviously, it's not all well. Paul goes on to speak about being alert. Part of being ready in the expectation of Christ's coming, yes, knowing our limitations recognizing where our focus is supposed to be, but also having enough common sense to look around and say, yes, there are troubles, there are afflictions, there's persecution, there are trials. You are to be alert, paying attention, and alert in several different ways. Um, verses 6 through 8 bring those out. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. In other words, it's characteristic at nighttime. You either, you either sleep, um, or if you're subject to uh, um, drunkenness, uh, those, those are the more common times when people are drunk. But we don't belong to the night. This is, this, we're, we're in the day in Jesus Christ, and we need to live that way. So let's think about this alertness. Uh, be alert in your actions you look around, the word here that you see here is let us keep, sorry, let us keep awake and be sober or to watch 
is the idea here. To watch, to keep awake. It has to do with vigilance, alertness. Uh, one of the things that uh, we often, uh, Fire Chief Glazier back there, when we talk about, uh, uh, we get together, we talk about the calls that we've had, and invariably it seems like they come in the middle of the night, <laughs> you've, just, you've just gotten in bed or you've just gotten ready to go to bed or it's two in the morning and you've been in bed for a while and you've just been in the middle of that REM sleep and your pager goes off and you're looking around and trying to figure out, you know, where, where your clothes are, where your shoes are. Do I have my wallet? Where's, where are the keys? Um, uh, the door must be here somewhere. I, I know I can find it eventually. It's, it's hard to function because you're... Uh, alertness is you've been asleep, right? But if you're if you happen to already be up, um, then you're much more likely to hear those tones and be able to answer quickly because you've been alert, you've been ready for it. Um, there, I know there are times when my wife just says, "Can you please just turn the pager off?" Because she knows <laughs> I'm looking at Mike's wife back there too, and she's going, "Oh yeah," because what happens? is we sit there and we're, whatever it is we're doing, whether it's at dinner, whether we're in conversation, whether we're watching a movie, whether they're doing something else, half of our brain has got an ear tuned waiting for that horrible invention to scream at us and tell us we have to go somewhere. But, okay, so in home life and so on, maybe that's not so pleasant, but when it comes to living in this world, we need to have our ears tuned to what the Lord is doing and to be alert and to be watching and to be considering what is going on. It's a good thing to do, to think about the Lord's return and to think about these things. And, and uh, as we are declared to be in the last days, then to live accordingly, paying attention and not just turning our brains off and deciding to enjoy life and not care about whatever else goes on around us. Paul says, no, be watching. And this is not just watch every once in a while, but this is a continual watching, being giving strict attention as if some destructive calamity uh, should overtake you. Because that's exactly the situation. We need to be watching. Um, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson points out um, that Jesus gives half a dozen parables, at least, to enforce the point of this exhortation. The parable of the porter, the master of the house, the faithful servant, the, evil, the faithful and the evil servants, the ten virgins, the, virgins, the talents, uh, the sheep, the, the sheep and the goats. Jesus wants us to be alert and paying attention and recognizing the signs. He rebuked the disciples, right? Uh, you and, and the people of Israel as well, by saying to them, you discern the, the times and the seasons, particularly says this to the, the, the crowds, he says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You can look at the wind and look at the sky and go, hey, it's gonna rain or it's gonna be sunny or whatever, but you can't pay attention to what's going on spiritually in light of God's word and how things are, 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 the Lord is marshalling his plan 
to put it into action, you need to be paying attention. You need to be alert. So that's, that's um, the action of, of, of watchfulness. Careless ease and dissipation, which is spoken of here as drunkenness, that is the mark of those who are still in darkness, not those who are in the light. So be alert in action. Uh, verse 8, uh, he focuses on the whole idea of sobriety as opposed, he's been talking about drunkenness, so he's, he's not just talking about not ever getting drunk with alcohol, though that, of course, is sinful as well. But that's the focus here is, the drunkenness that he's speaking here is really indicative of a whole character that says, I don't care what's going on, I'm just going to let loose the reality and I'm just going to go on and do this because I don't want to deal with something or I just want to step away from what I need to be doing. Um, sobriety here, in verse 8, let us be sober, has, of course, just the, the, uh, the normal uh, idea of just not being intoxicated, of course. But figuratively, in the New Testament, sobriety speaks to more than just that. It speaks to being um, free from every form of mental and spiritual excess and confusion. It speaks to being clear-headed, self-controlled, self-possessed as you walk through this life. Though uh, entertainment makes a lot of, uh, uh, finds a lot of humor in people who are falling down drunk, there's really nothing funny about it. It's pathetic. It's about a person who no longer, who has lost control. And Paul is saying, you need to be in control. You can't be alert. You can't be watching for the signs if you don't, if, you, if you're not in control of your mind and your thoughts and your actions. So we're to be sober. Now, interesting here, um, since uh, sobriety is described as having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Do these words sound familiar to you? Well, they should. Paul has spoken of this similar concept in Ephesians chapter 6, which is a more familiar passage to us when we start talking about the armor of God. But there in Ephesians chapter 6, the breastplate is uh, described as the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. And then for your helmet in Ephesians 6, it's the same, the helmet of salvation. So here we have the hope of salvation, which just expands on the same idea, of course. That gives us strength. But I think it's interesting that Paul changes up his, his, uh, his uh, metaphor here, uh, the breastplate of righteousness to the breastplate of faith and love. So, you know, what's going on with that? Well, I was trying to put this together, and I, I, I may not have hit on it uh, uh, fully, but uh, here you go. Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at it this way. With the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness has to do with adhering to the standards of God. 
which really fits the context of this particular passage in Thessalonians uh, better than just talking about, um, uh, or excuse me, I mean, it fits the context of Ephesians very well. But it also fits here because of his emphasis upon God's word and the revelation of God uh, to his people by his spirit. You're walking in light. So he shifts it up a little bit here, though, to add another dimension. I, I think it's not unreasonable to think that the letter to the Ephesian church may very well have made, it, made its way to Thessalonica at some point. And uh, they might have been comparing these things. To understand righteousness as more than just a wooden... Um, kind of obedience just out of obligation uh, is, is cold and is not much comfort. Remember Paul is speaking to them about comfort. He wants them to be able to edify each other to comfort one another with these words. So he focuses more on the, can I say the personal aspects of righteousness? That you're walking though he doesn't mention the word righteousness, when he talks about faith and love, he's speaking about walking in relationship with the God who has revealed himself to you and whose standards you are abiding by or should be abiding by. So I don't think Paul is confused here and forgot what he said to the Ephesian church. In other words, I really think that what he's saying here expands on the idea and helps us have a fuller concept of what walking in righteousness is really all about. Um, we walk in obedience to God's standards because we believe that those standards are of Him and that they are right and proper and 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 are, will will benefit us along with glorifying Him and and that th- that righteousness is to be lived out out of love for Him, but also in the context here out of love for each other and building each other up in their most holy faith, out of love and care for each other. So to me, that makes righteousness a beautiful thing and not just a, you know, a straight jacket, which is the way a lot of people think of righteousness as just making us do what we don't want to do because God, just because that, that mean God wants us to do something. No, it's out of love and faith that we walk righteously. So I'm going to uh, uh, also just draw your attention to remind you of Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he speaks about um, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So these three items are big in Paul's thinking, and he expands it here. So if we're going to be sober in our faith, we're going to be sober in our love, and we're going to be sober in our hope, what does that mean? How does that relate to being alert in your sobriety. First of all, when you are sober in your faith, there will be no confusion in the object of your confidence. No confusion in the object of your confidence. Because your faith is has to do with not just um, wishful thinking, but it's confidence in what he has revealed about himself, who he is, what he does, what his, 
plans are, what his character is, what his expectations are. We won't have any confusion if we are solid in our faith, if we're sober in our faith, uh, if we're not letting it get confused with the things of the world. And we will be confident because of the reality of his word, the bedrock of his revelation upon which we stand and can then walk uh, confidently. Again, kind of what we were talking about or what the what we were watching this morning in the Sunday school class, uh, the speaker there was telling us basically the same thing. Uh, we trust his word because it doesn't lead us astray. So no confusion in the object of your confidence. If you're sober in your love, there's not going to be any confusion in the object of your affections. The Lord Jesus Christ is the love of your life and your heart. If you turn your eyes away from that, if you're not sober and watchful and, and, and self-controlled, there's a lot of things out there that can appeal to our affections, are they not? Other people, other things, possessions, position, places, you name it. Lots of competition for our affections in this fallen world. And if we're not sober, we're not watchful, we're not careful to be self-controlled to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be confused and we will divide our affections. That's not being alert. We need to be fixed in our affections on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, the final one, uh, the hope of salvation, uh, Paul even gives us a hint there and speaks to us uh, of what that's involved with. Um, so you could, uh, even before I say the word, I'm sure those of you that are filling in blanks would know right to what to go in there. Uh, as you're sober in hope, there's no confusion in the object of your redemption or salvation. The one who is bringing it about, it, our hope is fixed in him. Not in our works, not in false gods, not in church structures, not in... Um, even in yourself as you're walking in a proper behavior, just your own behaviors, um, not in outward forms, not in any of that stuff, but in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. If you're sober in your hope, you're paying attention to the signs you've seen from his word from cover to cover um, as the Messiah is revealed. You won't have confusion as to how you get redeemed and who's doing the redeeming. Finally, in this living in expectation of Christ's coming, and I'll be fairly quick going through this. Verses 9 through 11, you're, you as a believer living in expectation of his coming are to have your confidence in him. And it really draws together all of the threads that we've been discussing so far. Verses 9 through 11, God has not destined us for wrath. You will not fear God's judgment if you're living in expectation of his coming, um, being united to him, because you're secure in his electing grace. Destined, mean, destined here means to appoint. You've been appointed to this. 
You can compare over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's the Lord who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. He is the one who grants you faith. He is the one who grants you repentance. He is the one who, start to finish, redeems you. And if that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what will. Paul says, you're you're not destined for wrath. You've been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. We're secure in his grace. So, in, as, as we look forward to his return, whether it's later today, next year, or a hundred years from now, as we live in that expectation, live confidently, without fear, without despair, no matter what else is swirling around. Live uh, confidently in Christ, not fearing his judgment. And in that confidence, you know, there's lots of trials and testings that, that can shake your faith, right? Whether it's health issues or financial issues, relational problems, whatever it is. In the midst of all of that, if you're living in confidence that he's coming again as he promised and, and, and to uh, uh, fully and finally and, and ultimately claim his own, you will not abandon your union with him. We read there in verse 9, uh, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He's worked to bring about this union. He's not going to walk away from it. And he calls us not to abandon it either. Second Corinthians chapter 5 reads, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He's called us to walk before him in, in holiness, faith, hope, and love. So let us do so confidently as we live in expectation of his return. And then finally, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So that confidence is not just about our relationship with Christ. It also will show itself in the way that we treat one another. Uh, these are uh, wonderful um, commands here that are, are, are full here. Encourage one another and build one another up or comfort and edify are, are good um, synonyms for those words. To comfort there or or uh, um, encourage includes an idea of appealing to each other. It's not just saying, hey, you know, buck up. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, uh, there was a, it's a great friend of mine uh, from our church in Oregon years ago who uh, has a boatload of daughters and uh, every time that they would, uh, you know, they, they'd have a, an owie or something else and they'd want to cry, 
he would go, take it like a man. <laughs> and uh, which the girls had a lot of fun with responding to. But, uh, you know, the idea, that's not what God is telling us to do. Just, you know, suck it up, take it, you know, kind of thing. Um, and that's not the way that we should encourage each other. We might do that uh, with some humor or whatever. But if we're serious about bringing comfort to one another, there's an appeal aspect. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a begging one another to turn our eyes back to Christ and to find our comfort in Him. That kind of encouragement. To help them, to help each other look to the real source of our hope and peace. And then building one another up. Uh, the idea of, of strengthening and restoring uh, people uh, that have been beaten down and that are discouraged. Uh, to give them those things, both in word and deed, that can help them stand in the midst of the trial. And he commends them. They're already doing that uh, in his, under, his knowledge of them. And he encourages them to not be weary in well-doing. So your conduct in these last days is to be marked by understanding, marked by awareness, marked by confidence as you live in the expectation of Christ's return. But here for Paul, and he does talk a lot about the second coming in this uh, book, but also in others. For Paul here now, Today is the present concern, not tomorrow. Today, in light of tomorrow, yes, we know it's coming. That's not, we don't, shouldn't think about it. But don't neglect today in the midst of that. Matthew 6, verse 34, reminds, Jesus reminds us, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Rather, Make the burning desire of your heart to uh, desire that Jesus come again. Not so much to attain to knowledge that you cannot know, but to desire that he come again and to desire that you be ready. That should characterize our conduct in these last days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have not left us without instruction, without guidance. We thank you that your spirit uh, comes alongside us and comes alongside your word to teach us those things that Christ has taught us. Lord, help us to be ready to receive those things, whether they are about the present or the future. But certainly, Lord, as we think today, let our present be filled with obedience, with joy, with awareness, with confidence as we... Uh, walk the path that you have ordained for us and let us do so with hope and all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Help us, Father, to do these things for your glory in Jesus' name.